Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. That's me. I've been doing this for over three years now, but for listeners who might be new to the show, the idea is, is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Before I get into the show proper, I've got some exciting news. We're turning Material Matters into an exhibition this September as part of the London Design Festival. It will be running from the 22nd to the 25th of September at the Barge House, Oxo Tower Wharf, across four floors that will each tell a different, distinct, and I think genuinely fascinating material story. If you're looking for somewhere to exhibit at this year's festival, drop me a line at grant at materialmatters.design. That's grant at materialmatters.design. So my guest today is Juliet Bigley, an artist who creates extraordinary, abstract, but somehow familiar pieces out of metal. I first saw her work at New Designers, the graduate design show held annually in London, after she left the CAS in 2013. And since then, her career has gone from strength to strength. She has a piece in the permanent collection of the V&A, has won a slew of awards, written a book entitled Material Perspectives, and exhibited around the world. She also happens to be an incredibly eloquent advocate for her material of choice and the importance of thinking through making. Juliet, lovely to see you. How are you? Very well, Grant. It's an enormous pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for doing it. One of the things we do on this podcast to kind of set the scene, really, and to give listeners a sense of you is to ask you to describe your studio. Now, we're doing this over Zoom, and I suspect looking at the Zoom screen, you're at home. But can we maybe cheat (laughs) and, and let us know a bit about where and how you work? Certainly. I'm lucky enough to have a place in a shared studio in Walthamstow. It's in a old printing works at the back of someone's house. There are four makers downstairs, two upstairs. We each have a bench and then there are various shared areas. Metalworking is very heavy on kit. Mm. There's always a lot of kit you need. And so being in a shared workshop is a real advantage, especially for the company as well. Were able to use that during lockdown, Juliet? How was the whole pandemic business for you? I had a year out, basically. I had COVID in the very first wave and it took me out for a year. So it was tedious, to say the least. (laughs) When you say took me out, how did it affect you? So going into COVID, I was the fittest I've ever been, as I think you know, Grant. Certainly pre-COVID, I was a long-distance swimmer. Yeah, yeah. So I was the fittest I had ever been. Got an infection, wasn't sick, wouldn't have really said I had anything. And then about a month later, I woke up and couldn't get out of bed. And that was me for on and off for a year. Wow. And it was right at the beginning, you know, the phrase long COVID didn't exist. It was just a bunch of us on Facebook trying to figure stuff out, basically. And that's really interesting. Were you able to figure stuff out across Facebook? You found people who are in the same situation as you? absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. You know, there are a handful of solutions out there that have worked for people. Not everything works for everyone. And I think you have to be quite strict about using your instinct about what's right for you. I certainly learned a lot. It was a very new thing for me to have to sit in one place quietly and not do anything. Mm. It was made significantly easier by the fact that no one else was doing anything either. (laughs) Um, This is true. But I learned patience in a way that I wouldn't have uh, expected beforehand. That's interesting. So there is one positive outcome of all this. I think there were lots of positive outcomes, which is a funny thing to say, but you know, like any life event, you learn. You learn about yourself, you learn about how you live in the world, you learn about your choices. And there's always something to learn. And where there's something to learn, it's not all lost. 
Mm. And how are you feeling now? Are you fine? Kind of recovered back to normal. Or? Yeah, completely yeah. back to normal and back to training, which is lovely. Yeah, more swimming. <laughs> yes. Can we talk about the swimming? I, mean, I wasn't intending on talking about swimming, but you brought it up. So why the fascination with swimming? I mean, you, you swim proper distances, don't you? Yeah, I've always loved swimming. I love the water. It is a second home. I enjoy a challenge and oh, these things are there. And when they're there, they just want to be swum. <laughs> <laughs> Things being bits of sea and rivers and Bits stuff. of sea, yeah, bits of sea. Some lake swimming as well, but mainly lake mm. and sea. And, you know, they're big projects. They're very time-consuming. It doesn't always fit, you know, with everything. But I did the channel in 2019, which was pretty much the last thing I did before COVID. And I'd wanted to do that since I was seven. So um, it was a real privilege to be able to do it. And I can tell you for free, it's a really long way. <laughs> <laughs> did you rub yourself down with goose fat no like so you don't do any of that um, you don't do that anymore. no you don't do uh, that uh it is uh just vaseline on sort of shoulders and right. things where your costume might rub and then you get in and get on with it don't stop till you get to the other side basically heavens and is that therapeutic i mean it must feel wonderful when you're done i guess it really depends on the swim. Sometimes I get a sense of achievement straight away. Sometimes it takes a little while to settle in. And for the channel, it took a while to settle in. Mm. And I'm quite intrigued. How did you start? How and why? Was there a reason? Well, funnily enough, uh, and this will lead us neatly back to metal. I took up swimming properly at the same time as I took up metal. I was going from a job that I knew was crazy. I was working in healthcare at the time. It was crazy hours and I was moving to one that was I knew was going to be much quieter and I knew I was looking for something else. And so I did a short course in metal and at the same time started swimming with a club. And just by chance, it happened to be a club that sort of specialised in open water swimming. Sort of both of them went from there, really. As you say, it segs neatly into <laughs> materials. I mean, the podcast is all about materials, obviously. And you've become, in my opinion, one of the most eloquent artists I know about metal and working with metal. So in the first instance, it would be good to know what drew you to the material. Well, uh, the short answer is pure chance. When I was moving from one job to the other, I went on a holiday with my partner and we ended up, we were in Greece, we ended up in a jewellery shop chatting to the, you know, they were owner makers and we were just chatting. And when we came out, he said, oh, you've got a good eye for that. And I thought, well, it may as well be that as anything else. <laughs> and I went to do a short course with Paul Wells, actually, at CSM, who's another super maker. And I enjoyed jewellery. It's a little bit small for me, but I enjoyed it. And then I heard that there was this thing called silversmithing and I knew instantly it was what I wanted to do it was like somebody had opened a door into a room that had been locked it was the objects it was the objects that drew me into that and then yeah I just sort of kept going really <laughs> so scale is important you didn't do jewelry because it was too small I'm really bad at small things <laughs> I find them very fiddly and very annoying <laughs> um I think as well the thing that drives me and drives my practice is how we negotiate our emotional and physical place in the world. And therefore, objects fit much more naturally into that than jewellery does for me. And scale, again, it's always a trade-off. I enjoy working bigger. I've made work kind of up to person size. But at a certain point, you move into more industrial techniques. And I like to be able to make things myself. That, for me, is where the thinking happens, really. And so I like to be able to do that myself. And of course, once you're into more industrial techniques, you're still doing some of it, but it's not the same relationship to the material and the piece. Can we talk a little bit about your work? 
Juliet. So what you do with the metal. I mean, you've described your pieces as abstract but relatable metal sculptures based on composite geometric forms, which is undoubtedly accurate. But perhaps <laughs> in layman's terms, what does your work look like? It's quite pared back. It's quite minimalist. I hunt for a sense of space. I mean, it's a slightly hackneyed phrase, but it is in some ways, I think, the easiest way to describe it. That sense, that pause, that rest between the in-breath and the out-breath. It's that sense of the kind of, infinite is a big word, but let's use it for now. It's that sense that I look for in the work. And for me, that arises partly through form, but also through the texture that you put on the material, uh, the finish you put on the material, and then the conjunction of different metals. Also, you mentioned space, and those spaces in between, which is a term that architects talk about Mm. quite a lot. Mm. Those spaces in between are really important in your pieces, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think this has to do with how we negotiate that place in the world is part form and part action and part space. And so I think there are the things that I'm sort of riffing on, if you like, with that, because my work looks quite simple, looks quite straightforward. Um, and as any maker will tell you, it's the simple stuff that's harder because you've got nowhere to hide. <laughs> because of that, the edges of the forms are very important. The seams of the forms are very important. And the rhythm that you can create by the juxtaposition of form and space is very important. But this notion of making, which you came to fairly late in life, really, you were 32, I think, when you first discovered metal. Why does that matter to you, making in general? It turned my world upside down because when I learned to make, I learned a completely different way of thinking, completely Mm. different way of thinking. And yeah, it rocked my world. I didn't know that it existed. I have always lived a life and still live a life that is um, mediated in many ways by the written word. I love reading. I love storytelling, narrative, myth. All of these things are very important to me. And so up until that point, a lot of my life had been mediated by and through the written word. But that's a very particular way of thinking, uh, linear, rational. In making, I discovered something totally different something which is much more dynamic, much more iterative, much more instinctive. These are not absolute positions. Incidentally, I'm not trying to say that, you know, as with many things, these two ways of thinking exist on a scale. It's not binary, is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah, it's not yeah, It's yeah. not binary. I just found it fascinating that there was this completely different way of thinking that involved your body as well, far more. And the rhythms of your body and the feelings of your body and the way that your body moves. And it was, yeah, like it, like someone had turned a light on. You talk about making helping you understand the world around you. I'm wondering how it might do that. So I think ever since I was a small child, and I remember sort of age six or seven wondering about this, I've wanted to understand what the relationship is between effectively the inside and the outside. I can put this in loads of different ways because in one sense, it's very obvious. In another way, it can be a slippy idea to get your brain around. What I mean by it is our lives are shaped by that interaction of inside and outside. Whether I wake up feeling grumpy, whether I wake up feeling happy, these things, we know these things have a material effect on how you experience your day. What is that about? <laughs> I was going to say, do you wake up? I'm sure lots of people do. I don't, but I don't think I do anyway, in a, a specific mood. No, rarely. That was a shorthand. Okay. Yeah. 
No, fair enough. But I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of just interested on a personal basis, yeah. actually. <laughs> That's a good question. I'll think about it. Okay, thanks. Yeah, no, not that I'm aware of. Yeah. But, you know, you start off having a good day, something happens, you go into a particular mood and it changes the direction of your day. So the very essence of who we are and how we live is woven, if you like, from this interaction between this intangible thing inside us. And we can put any sort of language on that. We can call it consciousness. But again, very big word, comes with a lot of baggage. But that interweaving between whatever this intangible part of us is and the physical world, it is literally the stuff of our lives. It's literally what our lives are composed of. But it doesn't really matter what window we look at it through. We don't have an adequate explanation of it yet, whether you go through philosophy, myth, religion, theology. We can't explain it, but it is literally our lives. And so... Uh, that's something I want to know. <laughs> it's something I want to try and find out about. Now, the reason why I think that making sheds light on this is because when you're making, you're putting two things together. You're putting idea together and material together. That's just a microcosm of all of the things that I've just spoken about. You have the intangible on the one side, you have the tangible on the other, and you are literally weaving them together. So for me, making is a microcosm of these things that we've been talking about. It is a microcosm of this experience of life. So if we can unpick making, which seems to me to be an infinitely more achievable task than unpicking <laughs> the relationship between consciousness and the material world, then maybe we can learn something. You know, maybe there is something to find out through that. Well, I'm intrigued. You've been doing this for a few years now. What have you learned? <laughs> Thanks, Grant. <laughs> <That's> um, <laughs> um, so I think one of the things is this idea of thinking through action. And it's something that we see a lot of. You see it in any kind of skill performance that is dynamic. So people in competitive sports matches, um, makers, surgeons, hairdressers, you'll see it with chiropractors. Whenever I meet somebody that works with their hands in this way, I ask them what it's like <laughs> and the extent to which they think with their hands. And pretty much everyone says, oh yeah, it all sits in my hands. Now, that presupposes quite a high level of skill. It's not something, of course, that you get as a beginner. You see it as well in um, anyone who's improvising, be that musically or on stage. So I think that it exists. We have a conception of the world that is governed very much by the kind of rules of thinking with language, let's call it. But this, yeah. this other way of thinking comes with a very different set of values and a very different way of acting, a very different direction of acting, if you like. So in this kind of thinking through making, it's much more fluid, much more iterative. You've got a general sense of where you're headed, but it really is a co-creation and a dialogue between you and the material. And that's where it gets interesting. <laughs> that's funny because that's a question I'm desperate to ask you. Because in the past, you've written about how your favourite moments as a maker is when the piece begins to talk back to you. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm intrigued by what that means. You know, could you try and describe that moment maybe? Absolutely. I'm going to give you three examples. Now I have to make sure that I remember the three. So the <laughs> first is when it starts to feed back to you through your hands. You're moving it. It doesn't move exactly how you want or it moves in a different way or something happens and you think, oh, hold on a minute. So that's that kind of direct one. And I don't want to say it's a sensation. It's more an instinct that there's a little catch. 
Is that an instinct you develop over time? Absolutely. Presumably you don't recognise it immediately. No, absolutely. I think as well it presupposes that your skills are automatic. If you're having to think about your skills, you're thinking about your skills. And so Mm. you need to not be thinking about your skills because then you're in a position to listen uh, and you can listen to the material because you're not kind of trying to figure out where your hands are. The second way is when a piece flatly refuses, which it sometimes does. (laughs) Uh, It just goes, no, I'm not doing that. Sorry. Um, I remember a piece really early on. I was still doing my undergrad and I was attaching a a top to a cone shape for simplicity. And this top just would not go on. And I filed and fitted and filed and fitted. And then it shifted suddenly and it fit perfectly. And it was a much more interesting piece as a result. Much more interesting, even though it hadn't been what I'd intended. So that's example number two. An example number three, it's more a borderline case, to be honest. Um, A lot of my pieces are made up of components uh, and I tend to be working on several components at a time. And I will sometimes turn around to find those components really interestingly arranged on the bench. Now, rather than the piece speaking back to you, I think this is more of an example um, of what I call tricking my subconscious into revealing itself. I think that's much more an example of that. But it's another way in which I'm sort of not consciously in control of, of or I'm not directing, I'm not consciously directing that action and that endpoint. Mm. You have this fascination through your work and when the materials are talking back to you with the vessel form. So why is that so important to you? Uh, so the vessel is a metaphor for the body. Yeah. Historically, again, mythologically, it's something that comes up again and again. I have moved further from kind of literal vessel forms, but my forms always have that sense of holding, whether that's a space you can access or not, or whether it's a, a completely closed piece. That 3D-ness, I think, speaks of body. And touch is so important. Touch is so important in making, but also in how we live. If the word is the vehicle for one type of thinking, touch is the vehicle for the other. And it's the way in which we encounter the world. I think in the West, we talk a lot about perception. But even then, a lot of our perception is based on touch and based on physical interaction with the world. I think a good example of this, because it's useful to ground it in an example, is say there are two shopping bags on the side that are full, before you even touch them, you know you have a sense of how heavy they are. And you know you have that because if you pick them up and they're either lighter or heavier, you go, oh. So therefore, you must have had a preconception beforehand. And so that bodily interaction is one of the ways we read the world, even though in our head we just see it. There's a lot more going on, I think, underneath that. The meanings of objects fascinate you i mean you write quite a lot about the things that we keep and why we keep them and what the objects mean yes objects are one of the ways in which we curate our identities there is an american sociologist hungarian american sociologist called the rather fabulous mihai chicks and mihai and i hope i have said that right don't ask me to spell <laughs> I won't, it i won't ask you to spell <laughs> it really yeah. glad about that and he writes fascinatingly um he's the author that wrote flow So we'll possibly be more familiar to listeners for that. But he Mm. writes fascinatingly about objects and the different ways in which we use them. One of the things he talks about is using them as, this isn't his language, but external storage devices effectively that our brain doesn't have the capacity to remember everything. And so we project memories into objects. And, you know, you see this with the holiday souvenir or an inherited object. 
these things hold memories and when we see them, we access those memories. So they are ways in which we shape who we are in the world and use them almost as reflections of our identity. And are you storing all this up in your head as you're making? Interesting question. No, I don't think so. The At a certain point, these thoughts become background effectively. So they're not, again, necessarily consciously drawn on. But when I'm making, I try and focus on the object in front of me. That is hopefully co-created. <laughs> you know, that piece <laughs> emerges and I tend to know what the piece is about after I've made it. I start very simply with form. I make inform, I compile these objects together, and then I read them afterwards like I would read someone else's work. I interpret them afterwards. And it's in that interpretation that I learn what it is that I was talking about. I suppose it's a little bit like free writing, just in 3D and metal. <laughs> so there's a fascinating turn of phrase on your website when you're talking about your practice and you say it's divided between making is construction and making is thinking. And I'm intrigued to know what the difference between the two is. So what for me is making as construction is where I fully design beforehand, know exactly what I'm doing and have no intention of veering from that and make through a preconceived series of steps. It's a bit like cooking to a recipe is how I would describe it. Thinking through making is much more iterative. It's much more instinctual, much more emotional. I will always start with a plan. I don't ever work straight into metal. It's too slow and too expensive. But I am extremely open to that plan shifting as I go. Making as construction is more likely to come through drawing. I, I draw very little, to be honest. I, I was going to say, you, you don't like drawing. I'm terrible at drawing. I mean, really, really terrible. <laughs> Technically terrible? Or is it the process of drawing you don't enjoy? I didn't come from a sort of traditional fine art background at all mm. in any way shape or form and so that sort of skill set is just not really a skill set I have and of course I could have put the time in and practiced it but I'm much more comfortable just getting straight into the materials so I would to the extent that I do draw I would sort of call it visual note taking I know what I mean by that random group mm. of squiggles but whether anyone else would <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, when I did collect open... Which is the Crafts Council's high-end art craft fair. Yeah. I started off drawing my proposal and honestly, within two minutes, thought this is just not going to work. And so I made a scale model. Oh, right. Okay. I made a tiny little scale model and then I photographed it and uh, did a bit of Photoshoppy stuff to it and drew over the top of it. And it worked really well mm. and was a much better route for me. There's a rhythm and there's a calmness in modeling that I personally can't find in 2D. And also, I think in 3D, I don't really think in 2D. Mm. But photography is quite important to what you do, as you mentioned, and a combination of photography and writing, which is quite interesting. Yes, I take a lot of pictures and then rarely go back to them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I keep on thinking I must go through my pictures and pull some ideas out of pieces from that. There's something about putting a frame around a collection of shapes which draws it into a different kind of form. I find stations, there's always a lot of really interesting shape conjunctions in stations. Railway stations. Yeah, yeah. And of course, um, okay. 
stations have a they're about movement they're about transition they're liminal spaces and these are all things that I draw on in my work as well so I also find that I'm at my most creative when I'm traveling because you're between identities when you're on a train Mm. or you're on a plane or Mm. you know you're going from one you to another you so to speak and so you know you're in this space where you're not tied as closely to the kind of minutiae of your life you know, if I'm on trains, I try very hard to kind of schedule creative work for that. Interesting. I can't write on trains. I have this notion whenever I'm on a long train journey that I'm going to sit there and punch out a thousand, fifteen hundred words or something. And it, I just can't do it. it. Makes me feel sick. Really? Yeah. Read, but I can't write at all. I hate it, actually. Anyway, back to you. <laughs> it's, it's enough about me. More recently, your work has become interested by lines and I guess boundaries. I mean, you've talked about liminal spaces mm. and the spaces in between. So how did this interest in lines happen and, and how has that impacted on the, the pieces that you started making? Lines are, and again, Tim Ingold has a, has a lovely book on lines too, in fact, for uh, listeners that might not know it as well, that both of them are well worth a read. It emerged through experimentation again. Mm. It was actually plaster casting and I was learning to make two-part moulds and quickly got bored and just started experimenting (laughs) instead. (laughs) And it was a very quick, dynamic way of working. And plaster is such a physical material to work with. It's just glorious. You get it everywhere and it, it has a really particular feel on your hands, this really kind of silky feel and then the temperature starts to change as it hardens. It's a gorgeous material to work in, not that mm. practical, but gorgeous. And when I undid these lines, and I had just been taping kind of styrene sheet together, and when I undid these lines, or these forms rather, I should say, lines appeared on the side of all of these forms. Now, of course they did. It was the line of the styrene tape together. But this is a really good example of what thinking through making is. Mm. These lines appeared. I thought, oh, now they're interesting. Why are they catching my attention? And you trace through that and you kind of follow that. It's like following breadcrumbs, but the breadcrumbs is curiosity. Like, oh, what's going on there? Oh, what's going on there? And these breadcrumbs lead you not only to interesting places, but to material that's really specific to you because it's your curiosity. I think um, curiosity is a superpower. (laughs) I think it's the superpower that we have and we should use it a bit more often. So, I started digging into lines and really it's their significance as points of transition and places that mark starts and end points and crossing points. We live in a society which is very driven by the dichotomy, black and white, up and down, in and out, all of these things are common opposites. Yeah, They're so conceptually common to us that we almost don't notice them. But many things don't fall into that. The grey area in the middle, if you again look at myth and fairy tale all the interesting stuff happens in those liminal boundary things at dawn or at dusk at twilight you know these are the places where magic exists and so you riff on all of that when you're working with lines there is also something about working in mixed metals your solder lines will always be visible but that for me is something that's very important because it speaks about the touching points of the form within the form And it speaks to a certain extent about how it's made, although I think that's a little bit less interesting than what they represent. Shall we talk about your background, Juliet? You were born in Sheffield. Your parents were musicians. Your father played in the Lindsay Quartet, I believe. 
what was your home life like? Were you making? Were you playing instruments? What were you, what was your childhood like? It was a lot of music. <laughs> a lot of music. Uh, I started playing the violin aged four. The piano around the same time, maybe a little bit later. And really that carried on right the way through childhood and quite intensely. I didn't really make. I used to sew a mm. little bit. And what I did in school, I enjoyed, but really all the time was spent on music. And then latterly, I sang a lot as well. Dropped the piano as soon as I could. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> why was that? I just never got on with it as an instrument yeah. at all. <laughs> Violin and singing made sense to me, piano, not so much. Yeah. Um, Interesting. But initially you studied English Lit? Yes. So, so did you have a sense of what you were going to do when you did that? Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I loved words and loved stories, so uh, it was a natural place. I studied in Edinburgh and spent a lot of time doing music up there as well, a lot of my time uh, playing and singing orchestras, choirs, chamber music, um, small yeah. vocal ensembles. Subsequently, you did a master's in voluntary sector policy at the London School of Economics and worked for a year in the voluntary sector. So why did you leave? So I had always been 50-50 between music and healthcare. I spent time while I was at Edinburgh working in an HIV hospice. There's one just outside Edinburgh and was there for a couple of years really and had always been 50-50 between music and health. And so it was a backup plan really. I spent a year working in the voluntary sector before going to music college for a year and finding out pretty quickly that it just wasn't what I wanted to do, that it wasn't the right fit for me. Why was that? It's a very, very difficult career. Mm. I had certain... <laughs> they chose becoming an artist <laughs> yeah, Exactly, <instead>. exactly. <laughs> I think I can answer that question on a whole range of levels, to be honest, especially now from the perspective of making. I mean, one of the issues was not wanting to teach, which as a musician is something that you really have no choice Oh, it's it's a very few musicians that don't end up doing some teaching. And I, I knew it wasn't something that I wanted to do. There were aspects of my singing that I found it difficult to crack. And in the end, I think just the balance of kind of things I wasn't enjoying tipped. And I had always been 50-50 with healthcare. And so I had something else that I wanted to do. So I went back into the sexual health sector and worked for Terence Higgins Trust for Oh, I don't know, seven years or something like that. You started on the helpline and, and ended up running its clinical services. You have right? done your research, Grant. <laughs> Occasionally. <laughs> yes, um, I started off on the helpline uh, and then I did some frontline work, but ended up working in clinical services, setting up community clinics. And it was brilliant. I loved it. And, you know, what I then went on to do in healthcare was service design, kind of on the back of that. And service design is essentially... You're either setting up completely new services, so you get a brief, much like a design brief, and you crack on with it, basically, or you're working with services that sort of need to restructure or reshape themselves. And again, I really, really enjoyed it. In retrospect, I was designing, but I wouldn't have said, even though service design has that in the title, many of the processes are the same. Problem solving, figuring out how things fit together. And fundamentally, that's what I'm interested in, how things fit together. Mm. And then you had this epiphany, which we kind of <laughs> talked about yes. on holiday in Greece. And can you remember that first time you got your hands on metal? Because you talk brilliantly and, and very cerebrally about working with the material. But can you remember that first time you got metal in your hands and, and how it felt? 
In all honesty, not really. I remember doing a very fiddly bit of piercing, piercing being the use of a very fine saw blade to cut out metal. And I still have that piece hanging somewhere in the kitchen. I do remember that. I think that having learnt an instrument to a high level really, really served me in picking up metalwork late because I knew how to practice. I knew how to break tasks down. I knew what practice looked like. I knew what the arc of learning a new skill looked like. And I understood in a very real way that the more you do it, the better you get. And now I couldn't have articulated this until a bit later, but that there is this relationship, both in learning skills and in performing skills, that there is a relationship between action and reflection. And a little bit like trying to write and edit at the same time, it's a terrible idea to do them both. (laughs) You know, it's one and then the other. And sometimes you'll flip between those quite quickly. And sometimes it will be over a much longer period of time. Are you a harsh critic on yourself? Yes. But also there's a little bit of me that's quite lazy. (laughs) Really? How does that manifest itself? I mean, obviously not in long distance swimming. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) I think maybe the phrase is done is better than perfect. So maybe lazy is a little bit harsh. Maybe done is better than perfect. I feel very strongly about perfection in making and that it is not the bar to which we should be holding ourselves. For me and my work, for other people, of course, it's your own judgment. But I think that the whole point of handmade objects is to see the touch of the person, is to see the touch of the other. And that through that object, you reach into someone else's life, be they alive now, be they long gone. There's a magic to that and there's a richness to that. That is what I think in many ways the handmade object has to speak of because otherwise you just make it cheaper with a machine. And when you're dealing with perfection, what you're seeking to do is make it look like it was made by a machine. Whereas for me, it's that expression of gesture and that expression of movement that characterises the making process that you want to see in there still. I'm intrigued by that period of reflection. So you finish a piece and you're reflecting on it. I know, remember talking to Jennifer Lee, the renowned ceramicist a few years ago, and she was saying that she doesn't draw a piece to begin with, but she draws it when it's finished. And that informs her next work. So I'm wondering what that period of reflection or how that period of reflection informs what you do next. It's always a real privilege if you're exhibiting and you're on the stand to spend time with your work and to spend time with your work in a different situation. You know, spending time with your work in the workshop is one thing, but spending it where you see it slightly through the eyes of other people is very helpful. It's a very useful thing to be able to kind of hang out with your work. I sometimes, if I'm uncertain about the direction a piece is going, or if I'm uncertain about a decision I've made, I'll clear my bench completely, leave it set up in this kind of uncertain state in the middle of my bench. So it's the first thing that I see when I come in in the morning and it's a really good way of telling whether it's right or not. I tend to get an instinctive yes, no. And that's a very helpful thing. And sometimes you just have to wait for the piece to, well, either for it to tell you or for you to be able to hear it, one or the other. The reflection on the work afterwards is usually through photos. Apart from when I get to hang out with the work on a stand, it's usually through images. But again, images is not the same. And we learned this in the pandemic. We're back to the shopping bags that you read 3D work with your body. And with 3D work, you can peer around it, you can peer in it. And all of these things 
engender physical movement or entail physical movement. And that physical movement is then another way of relating to the piece. None of that exists when you're looking at a picture. Now, I think if it's a piece I've made, I know that piece intimately. I know the weight. I know the feel. I know the texture. I know all of those things. Those things are imprinted. But it is a real problem with the increasing reliance, I think, that our industry has on images, is that you only get to read about a tenth of the piece. I remember seeing your work when you graduated new designers in must be in 2013 and you could see influences there i thought the likes of simon ten hompel who's been on the podcast david clark who's another fine metalsmith who will be on the podcast at some stage i'm sure if he agrees <laughs> but it also seemed incredibly resolved and you made this series entitled conversation pieces which were a, a pair of silver vessels that were made at jaunty angles as if they were in conversation so i'm keen to know what your work looked like when you arrived at the CAS and when you discovered your aesthetic? That is a very interesting question. <laughs> I think it probably just looked a bit scattered when mm. I came to the CAS. I don't think my work was ever particularly organic. I don't think it was ever particularly curvy. I think that your work emerges by people pushing you further and further and further and further. And Simone has a gift for that. <laughs> mm. and I think it comes with time I often think that makers look like their work and I find that a fascinating observation oh it's like owners look like their dogs I haven't heard of this before (laughs) I'm going to think about this really carefully I think it's often the case and so I mean who knows what's cause and effect or whether that is just in my mind but there is something about uncovering an aesthetic that resonates with you in some way. And that's Mm. ultimately what it's about. It has to be a representation in some way of your voice, but that takes time. Something that I found very hard on the undergrad was not understanding how you could tell if something was good or not. And it sounds like a ridiculous question. And I remember speaking to so many tutors and some of the excellent technicians at the CAS and just saying, how do you know? And pretty much everyone said, you just know, which was very unhelpful. And then... (laughs) (laughs) But that's that tacit knowledge talking back to you. It is, it is. And then I remember partway through my master's looking at some of the then undergrad work and suddenly feeling that I kind of knew and that it was the very beginning of that. It it certainly wasn't fully resolved, but that suddenly I knew. And I don't know what that comes down to. Maybe it's just familiarity enough. Maybe it's something along the lines of, you know, you need to have a certain fluency in a language in order to tell if a sentence is well written. There's probably some sort of parallel in there. Mm. Before this interview, you sent me some new writing that you're working on, which I really enjoyed. And one of the things I really enjoyed from it with these little pen portraits of different types of metals that you work with. And I wonder if we can unpick some of the characteristics of some of the materials that that you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis, because you give each one a very distinct personality. So brass, for instance, what, what, is the, what are the traits of brass? Brass is a lovely metal. It's incredibly cooperative. It wants to please, fundamentally. It's very easy to work. It's a pleasure to cut. It's very easy to shape. You can't push it too far on the soldering. And then it's just glorious to finish. You know, and you get this kind of, depending on what alloy, there are many, many alloys of brass, depending on what alloy you have, this buttery gold, but not in your face gold finish. And it's just a joy to work with. Everything about it is a joy to work with. And yeah, as a metal, it's, it's a metal that wants to please. Now, compare that with nickel. There are two reasons I like working in nickel. 
three reasons. First of all, it's not a metal that people are familiar with. So you're automatically drawing people who look at it into a slightly unknown place. Visually, it reads halfway between steel and silver. It has a kind of warmth that silver has, but a kind of standoffishness that steel has. And thirdly, I like a challenge, as I said at the beginning. And boy, is nickel a challenge. It's not so much bringing your A game as your A plus game. Any foot across a line, any step taken wrong with nickel and you're into hours of recovery and then something else will happen in the recovery and something else will happen in the recovery. But I really enjoy that challenge. <laughs> mm. We talked about waking up in the morning in a certain mood. Do you wake up in the morning thinking I'm going to work with a certain material today? I know when it's not a nickel day. Uh, okay. Other than that, no. Interesting. But I largely choose which metals I'm going to make in for each piece by instinct. That's by feel. There's a certain sensation. And generally, I know that if I think I've designed a piece and I can't figure out what metals I'm going to make them in, it's not resolved yet. The metals have to feel like they're at home in the piece before I'm ready to make. Right. So you don't wake up thinking, I want to work with something servile. It's a pewter kind of day. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's usually driven by uh, what the next deadline is and what's, the, yeah, what's no, on the bench. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, one thing I do want to ask you actually is you talk about silver, you describe silver as, as it whispers. Mm, yeah. What does that mean? It's interesting to have to try and put it into other words. For me, silver is almost otherworldly metal. It's a metal that obviously it has a preciousness to it in a kind of monetary sense, but it's a very quiet metal. But that quiet doesn't come from being kind of subdued and being silent. It comes from kind of having a deep wisdom about it. And so the information you get from it comes to you gradually and very quietly. It's a metal that speaks quietly. And you can see it particularly when, when with that matte finish. It whispers. <laughs> you know, that matte finish is, is so soft and pillowy and white. And it, it speaks of um, the rustle of white feathers, which is a whisper. Mm. And as you said, you mix metals quite regularly. Yes. And so what combinations work? You're looking at different characteristics, presumably, and bringing them together, a yin and a yang of metals. There are two aspects to this. One is the sort of cultural aspect. And in that sense, it can be a hook. I think people find metal to be quite a difficult material. I find that hard to unpack because it's my material. <laughs> but metal is a huge part of our culture. And it's something that is so embedded in our culture that we have certain subconscious associations with it. So copper is typically associated with warmth and domesticity and kitchens and warmth, whereas steel is hard, it's industrial. So even without being conscious of it, we bring these associations to viewing a piece in metal. And so when you start to put combinations together, you can either work with those or you can seek to disrupt them. So that's one aspect. And then the other aspect is kind of using these different characters to work together in the piece. I think a good example of this is steel and silver. It's a combination that I cannot get enough of. <laughs> <laughs> I think aside from anything else, when you use silver solder on steel, you get this glorious line that's just, I mean, it's beautiful. And what I play with with steel and silver is you have this tension between this very hard industrial metal. And, you know, if you think of the language we use around steel, 
all of the language we have around it is percussive and forceful. Whereas the language we have around silver is much softer. It has all of those cultural associations of preciousness, but then of course the surface has this whispering soft whiteness. And you put them together and you create a tension between the material and in the piece that is for me, as much there as the physical structure. And maybe this is going back to, to what you say about what we were talking about earlier about the relationship between space and form. Mm. Juliet, it's Friday. <laughs> we're recording this on a Friday afternoon, late afternoon. It's nearly Friday evening. I'm sure you want to go down the pub. Our time basically is up, sadly, because I'm really fascinated by what you had to say. But I'm, I'm keen to know in the, the final question really is what can we expect from you next? Um, I have some shows coming up in the autumn uh, that I'm making new work for. I'm working particularly with wall pieces at the moment. They allow me to play with form as form. It takes away all notion of function. And I think also people are more comfortable with abstract on the wall. I think people are more familiar, I should say, with abstract on the wall. And I get to just go wild with shape, which is enormous amounts of fun. So there's a new collection they're coming out and then uh, as you say a little bit a little bit more writing to come good well we will look forward to both those things Juliet, thank you so much for your time really appreciate it always a pleasure to see thank you, you grant it's uh, it's been a real privilege to be on here to find out more about Juliet and her remarkable work in metal go to julietbigley.com there are images from the interviews on my Instagram page, which has changed to material.matters underscore grant.gibson. That's material.matters underscore grant.gibson. And you can sign up to the Material Matters newsletter and find out all about the new fair I'm launching this September at the Barge House Oxo Tower Wharf at materialmatters.design. Finally, and this is really important too, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>